The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Well, welcome. If you're new here, my name is Ryan and I'm your pastor. And today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. But as you're flipping there or scrolling there, I want to read these words over us to prepare us, to remind us how close God is to us in every moment. This comes from the book of Psalms. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee? From your presence, if I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold on to me. I want us to think about this God who is this present as we jump into this morning's text. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll unpack it. Father, we are about to look at two very distinct tables to eat at this morning. I pray that you would, as you did in the first service, send people into radical freedom. For freedom, Christ, you set us free. Yet so many of us hold on and are stuck and enslaved by so many things in this world. I pray that this morning's message would speak to my heart again, would convict me again, and that we would, as a chapel family, once again, be given the supernatural ability to take the masks that we wear off of our face and be vulnerable to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. All God's kids said, amen. I'll explain this shortly. I want to give us a little bit of a background. If you haven't been walking with us in season three, I, I need you to understand that this season of Corinthians is chapters eight through ten. And there's a very specific problem solving that Paul has been going through. And what happened in chapter eight, it's almost going to sound like Paul is contradicting himself in chapter ten. In chapter 8, Paul said, regarding the meat that was sacrificed to idols, he said, idols are nothing. Eat the meat. All of the meat is God's. Everything in the world is God's. So you don't need to be concerned and consumed about, was this sacrifice to this idol? Was this sacrifice to that idol? Now in chapter 10, he's going to seemingly contradict himself. But it comes on the tales of what is right between chapters 8 and chapters 10. If you missed last week's service, I'll sum it up in this phrase. We are all one step away from stupid. Don't be stupid. That was it. You're welcome. You missed a week. I caught you up. On the tail of this thought, this idea that temptation is going to be all around us and that none of us should consider ourselves able to overcome them in our own strength. We need the armor of God, not the armor of Ryan, not the armor of you. Now we're going to jump into this topic. 
And it's go, going back to this meat thing, which it doesn't really, there's, it doesn't equate to our culture because the problem was this. There were Christians who said, man, we know Christ. We are free. We are freed from the ceremonial laws. We can eat bacon. It doesn't matter where the meat came from. It's ours and it is good. And then there were younger believers. There were believers who came from different traditions and they said, you can't eat the meat that was sacrificed to that, that altar right there because it was to another god. Now if you eat that, aren't you going to align yourself with that religion? This was the battle. There was someone that had a religious rule and, and then there was someone who was so free and they were battling each other. The free people were saying, just give it up. And the people that said, well, we can't eat it. They said, no, why would you do that? You're contaminating your soul. Don't do it. And, and it's really weird because we don't do this today. Like I've not seen one person. And if there's any place that's religious, it's the pseudo South Florida. And I've been in the public's meat lines and the butcher line. I've never heard one person lean over to the butcher and say, excuse me, I need to know if this ribeye was sacrificed to Molech before you put it in the packaging. I've never heard it. We do have some things, right? The rules that we've added on, rules that we've added in addition to that aren't necessarily sinful. Can anybody think of some? Not a rhetorical question. What's something Christians do that we, or say is bad, that we are actually free to do? Dance? Eric, you were dancing today on your base. Drink beer. That's probably the closest thing, if I had to guess. But, as my wife tells me, Ryan, you've beat the drinking thing like a dead horse. So I'm going to beat it again, and it's here. Here's the deal. Some Christians say, you can't drink, it is sinful. To which I usually reply, Jesus' first miracle was 760 bottles of the Chateau Merlot. The problem, the problem is, is if we break things down into rules, if we break things down into systems, we will actually create religious people who are more enslaved than we were before we ever walked into a religious gathering. So now the text. How do we actually change? How do we actually find freedom and what does it look like? Verse 14 of chapter 10. So then, my dear friends, Flee from idolatry. What does it mean to flee? Flee. Run. Like run. Flee. Flee from idolatry. Run from idolatry. Now the question is, none of you has a jade Buddha statue. And we've talked about idolatry a lot at the chapel. Idolatry is not just the statues. It's not just these little mini depictions of gods from a faraway land. Idolatry is when you take anything that's not God, and you put it in the place of where God should be for your significance, your worth, and your value, for your sense of purpose in life. And it's usually not even a necessarily bad thing. Usually it's a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. So fleeing. I, it's a weird word, and I, I realized this morning, if you say any word multiple times, like flee, 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 they all sound weird because I tried it with another word. I was like, pants, pants, pants. And any word you say more than five times, I'm guaranteed it's weird. And the word flee... I don't see things flee very often. Like there's, my kids flee from me, usually on a every other week basis. We all flee from my wife daily. My first ride along was like the, the true sense of the word flee. And it's, it was the funnest thing for me. As a kid who grew up in not the best neighborhoods, I grew up not liking the police and running from them. I used to flee from them when I saw them. And even to this day, if I see a police officer or if one is behind me and I'm driving, it doesn't matter if it's my neighborhood or not. I'm going in. It doesn't matter if it's my driveway or not. I'm hiding in. If they're following me, I'm going to park in some of your driveways on accident. 
But this, uh, and the ride along the, with the sound system that they have in there, it's, we, we did this radar thing. It's a thing we all hate. And inside the cars, and like I said, I don't know if this is illegal to share or not, so if it is, Lord, forgive me, I apologize. Inside their car, they have a system when their radar is going, and it plays a sound that alerts them with an audio response to your speed. And it's like this. Here you come around the corner, and they're parked there. They're, they have their gun pointed at you out of the back of their car. And you come around the corner, and it picks up your car, and it goes, Boo! When you slow down, it goes down. When you speed up, it goes up. So we did what we all do. We parked at a, a cop corner. It was my first time. I was like, this is it. This is what I've lived for. I'm on the other side of the lawn now. And every time a car came around the corner and saw us, you would just hear the sound. You didn't even have to see the car. You just hear it go, boo, boo, boo. And he's like, okay, they know we're here. You know, I'm like, yeah, dude, look, we're on ways. Like, we got to get, you know. Uh, so we go, so we go to news here. We got to get a good spot. And he takes me to the good spot. And we're there. And we're here in the same, the car. You hear the same thing, boo, boo. Because they hear us, they see us, they slow down. But then one car, bold. All we hear is, and then we flip on the lights. They start shining. And that car goes, the car takes off. Our very first time, we come ripping out of this street. We're going after all. I was like, this is it. This is the moment I've been waiting for. Like, I'm in the cop car. He's hitting it. Whatever engine they put in those supercharged things, my back is like pressing back into it. And he's like, they're running. They're running. They're fleeing. And I'm in the past. It's like, bad boys, bad boys. What you going to do when they come for you? Bad. And we... We turn a corner, and they go into the neighborhood, and he knew the neighborhood. I didn't. The cop knew the neighborhood. He's like, oh, no, it's going to go. They're going to run. They're running. And we turn a corner again. And then we turn, and the car's right there in the middle of the street. Driver's door's open. Passenger door's open. The driver's long gone. The passenger, not in as good a physical condition, was just like, I give up. I'll stay right here. The driver got away. Fleed, fled, ran, made it, escaped. Now, the problem the problem that I need to address before we even read the rest of this passage, because it's this weird text talking about the meat eaters and the non-meat eaters, and should you eat meat, even if it, you know you can do it, maybe you shouldn't so that other people don't stumble. What I want to encourage you today is that most religious teaching will try to say, run, run from sin, run from sin, flee, do what Joseph did when that temptress of a woman grabbed him, he threw off his coat and he bolted out of there. It's important to run, but not just running aimlessly. We have to know what we're not just running from, but what we're running toward. Because you can run from one sin into the arms of another. And the sin that specifically I want to talk about, the number one idol that I see in my day-to-day, -day, it's not one of these weird named gods of another country, another religion. The number one idol that I see here today in myself is me is you, the idol of self-righteousness. And if you're not a church person, the word we would use is self-sufficiency, thinking you can do everything on your own. You don't need the help of someone else. You don't need the help. You're going to earn the achievement. You're going to get the accolades. You're going to get the love. You're going to make it so that other people respect you, and it's all going to be because of something that you did. That's what the Bible calls self-righteousness. One of the greatest idols in our culture is the idol of ourselves, that we think it's all about us. And today's passage is going to put, paint a stark contrast. Not to say run from yourself. It's going to be very nuanced, so I need you to, to walk with me. I'm speaking, Paul says, I'm speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I'm saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? 
the bread we break? Is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. Since all of us share the one bread, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate at the altar? What am I saying? That food sacrificed to demons? Uh, that, that food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I do say that when they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul seemingly is contradicting what he says in chapter 8. Literally one page back. He says, does meat sacrifice to idols matter? No, it's not. It doesn't matter because those idols aren't real. God owns all the cows, all the pigs, all the goats, whatever kind of meat you eat. So eat it. And then in 10, he says, maybe we shouldn't eat it. Maybe instead of just saying we're free, we would consider something else. We would consider the table that we're sitting at. Hence, the table. Now, there's something I need to go a little nerdy about with you today and just tell you. Um, when it comes to idolatry, when it comes to self-sufficiency, when it comes to the things we live for, it's so easy to pretend. It's so easy to put on our masks, to put on the covering and show people what we want them to see. And I'm just too tired to do that today, most days, but especially today. I have my own idols, and I need to share some of those with you. You know, one of them, obviously, um, I'm a pastor. I think it's so weird to be a pastor. They put a light on you every week. They give you a mic to amplify your voice. People generally honor you a little bit more in some states than others. And people seek out your advice from time to time. They put your face on the internet. And after all this, and they say, pastors should be humble. It's the weirdest thing to me. I'm like, Lord, you know I already struggle with this. Thinking much of myself. Looking to your approval to give me a sense of worth or validation for my life. You want to know where else I, I idolize? Because it's, it's not the big, dark, nasty sins that people are running to for idolatry. None of you are going to go home today and say, you know what I really need to stop doing? Murdering people in my neighborhood. See, the idols, like I said, they're usually a good thing that we put in the place of an ultimate thing. My kids are an idol for me. Often. Often. This week, um, or last week, one of my teacher, teacher, one of my kids got a, sent a letter home. Your kid is not trying. Effort poor. And I tell my kids all the time, I don't care what grades you get, just be kind. I don't care what grades you get, just be kind. I don't care what grades you get, just be kind. And then his grades slipped a little bit, and his teacher said lack of effort. And literally, like, all of the inner half Asian within me was like, you are grounded for the rest of your life. I took away his phone. I took away his computer. I'm like, you're done. He was the sweetest kid all week. So I'm going to ground the rest of my kids just for fun next week. But here's what, here's what it is. The teacher, I was like, you're reflecting poorly on me. Like, you're, you're supposed to be my son. The reason that you're in these gifted programs is because you're your mom's son. It's because of me. They're, all three of my kids, they're so smart, so angry. But they're all 
They're all in gifted. That's how I also know it's an idol. Because when they were all in gifted, the first thing I did was call my mom, who works at their school. I was like, Mom, all three of them got accepted for gifted. My Asian genetics are coursing through their veins. I know that sounds racist. It's not racist. It's just I'm smart and humble <laughs> and attractive and in great shape. Sorry, now I'm lying. See? It's, but, but here's the thing. Kids, we think, we think, oh, yeah, but everyone loves their kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know everyone loves their kids. But when the success of your kids is where you get your sense of validation from as a parent, you've elevated them. You focus on the family so much that the family has become your God and God is in second place. That if God said, I want you to go and, and live in this area and enroll your kids in this school, which has like a D grade or a number letter two, whatever it is. See how smart I am? Letter two. Go to that school because the gospel needs to go there. And we're like, well, no, Lord, we got to this place for the best schools. God says, no, what about that? All of a sudden, an idol becomes bubbling up to the surface. Oh, I'm doing everything for my kids and around their sake. And I'm not saying, like, purposefully enroll your kids in some atrocious place where they're going to get beat up and stabbed and mugged and drugs and all the nine yards. But I'm going to say, are you doing all of your life so that you can be seen by others as having raised amazing children? brilliant children, successful children, or are you living the life that God has called you to live? Because you can focus on the family too much. Kids can become a sense of idolatry. If, you don't, if you're not tracking yet with that, how about this illustration? If your kid does something at the house, you have a general response that you do as parents or grandparents. If they do the exact same thing at a public restaurant, I've seen you, your response is not the same at a public restaurant. If your kid says the same thing at home, they're like, daddy, 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 daddy. And they throw a cup of something or whatever. They start throwing a fit. Wah, wah, wah. At home, you're like, go to your room. Go to your room. At a restaurant, we all turn into Batman. You shut your mother and now. When we get home, we're going to talk about this. Or something like that. I've seen you. I do it. You grab them. Stop. Stop it. You don't. Not here. Why not here? Oh, because we care what other people think about us. Well, no, I don't want to make their experience at dinner bad. We're all at Bahama Breeze with a bunch of little kids. It's going to be a bad experience. Okay? But we, that's, it's, it's a tell in your heart. Here's another tell. Here's my idolatry this last week. Uh, as Charlie had mentioned, he had a TIA. It's also known as a mini stroke. It's where your blood slows down, and um, he couldn't form a sentence. And people were calling Amy. Dad can't talk. What do we do? I said, go to the hospital. That's a stroke. He needs the meds. Quick. And um, we didn't know. I didn't know that it was a, a, a transient one. I didn't know it was passing through. And as I'm getting around, I'm like, okay, oh, babe, I'll go to the hospital. You get the kids. And she said, no, you get the kids. I'll go. It's my dad. I'm like, oh, yeah, you go. Your dad. As she's walking out of the garage, my mom calls, who's been updating me and my grandma. She's in Texas right now. My mom's in Texas with my grandma because uh, a scan came back. And my mom got the results. Literally, as Amy's walking into the garage to go see her dad in the ER who can't form a sentence, isn't thinking clearly, I'm like, Charlie's going to die. And then my mom says, are you sitting down? I'm like, no, just tell me. Can't get worse than it is in this moment. And she said, well, grandma has a mass on her ovary. It's about the size of a grapefruit and it's cancerous. And she's also got a mass on one of her lymph nodes in her groin. She's going to have to have surgery. And that's all we know. We know that the mass is touching other organs. And kids, kids are perceptive. They, they picked up on Amy panicking and running out. And then I said, thanks for letting me know. And I hung up the phone. And I am, I am the emotional brother, right, Trent? Thank you. 
The only reason Trent can't cry is because me and my friend hit him in the tear duct with a hockey stick when he was a young child, and he can't cry out of one eye. You're welcome for making you the man that you are. And uh, I'm sitting there, and I just start tearing up. And I was afraid. My grandma was, um, my mom was a single mom a lot of my younger years. My grandma was the one who took care of me. She pulled out her retirement. She was 38. She was my age when she became a grandma. And she, she pulled out her retirement in her 40s to buy me clothes and shoes. And she lived with me m- most of my young life. And I'm like, Lord, I'm just scared. I got not Charlie's the closest consistent thing I've had to like a father figure who I can like see and say, how do you fix this? My toilet's broken. What should I do? Help me paint. And he's always there. So in that one moment, my kids are watching dad. And, uh, and in their own way, they just came up and approached. And I was afraid. And I don't have fear very often. Like, I'm not afraid of any of you. I'm not afraid of someone trying to come and get me. But in that moment, I just had overwhelming worry and anxiety. And I know these things. And you're like, well, worry and anxiety, Ryan, that's like a, that's a part of the human experience. My, that's my point exactly. The human experience, the way that we are wired because what is sin is done in us, is we default to not trusting the God who is above us, around us, before us. We're not trusting the God who is to the east and to the west. We're not trusting the God who knows the words before we say the words. We've said, instead, Lord, I need to, I need to worry because there's something out of my control and I don't trust you enough to be in control. And we go and we eat at this table, and it's a table of idolatry. It's a table of saying, I don't trust God. And we don't say it out loud, but that's what idolatry is at the bottom of bottoms. It's, I don't trust in God. I'm trusting in something else. Lord, what is going on? And in each of my kids' own ways, they approached me. And um, (laughs) Silas, I don't know. I don't know where he's at (laughs) emotionally, but I know he just is very matter-of-fact. Jackson is going to be like me. The kid's going to cry every time Mufasa dies in The Lion King. And he said, Daddy, what's wrong? Why are you worrying? And I'd say, I'm just worried. And Silas is like, Dad, the Bible says don't worry. And then they're all ganging up on me, telling me to stop sinning. Like, the Bible says cast your cares. And I'm like, you cast your cares. You go to your room. And then um, then Savannah was came to me that night, and I wrote a, a post about it, a blog about it. She just came crying, saying she's not ready to die. We were talking about death all week, talking about death. Because usually I'm like, yeah, we die, we get to go be with Jesus. But then right when you're at the brink of it, things change. My grandma, I don't know what's going to happen with her. She has surgery on Wednesday. Pray for her, Grandma Sherry. And here's, here's what I realized. I have sinned. And by sinned, I mean I've gotten up from the table of thinking and remembering what God has done, and I've sat down at the other table of not trusting God, of not believing God's promises, of not leaning on God, of not crying out in prayer to God and just saying, I can't believe this is happening, I can't believe this is happening. I've gone over and over the idolatry of many different things, whether it's drinking too much or judging people who do this, it's whether it's thinking too highly of myself and not elevating Jesus but elevating me. There's a million things. There's a reason my shirt says, worthy is the lamb. And not worthy is the Ryan. I'm not worthy is you or the chapel. Because idolatry will sneak and weave its way into our heart. And that's where this interesting thing comes with the cups. In the middle of this passage, Jesus says, don't you know, you who are arguing about, is this right? Is this the rule? Is that the rule? He's going to wipe the rules right off of the table. 
And he says, there's a cup of blessing. Now, this is just for those of you who want to be nerdy. On a Passover meal, there would generally be four cups. And there would generally be three pieces of bread, matzo bread, not Cuban bread. But I figured it's appropriate for like a Tampa representation. The first cup was the cup of... And they have different names, but the first one generally is a cup of sanctification. And in the Passover meal, you would read a certain scripture, and then you would drink of the cup. This is the cup of God reminding his people, I will bring you out, out of Egypt. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt and make you mine, make you different. The next cup is the cup of deliverance, or the cup of the plagues. This was... This was the cup saying, I'm going to change you. I'm going to bring you out. This is the cup saying, I'm going to deliver you, not just from the Egyptians, but from the things that would enslave you, from the religious rules, from all the things that bind you to living for something else, to living thinking, if I have enough money, if I have enough accolades, if I have enough achievements, then I'll have enough. God says, I will deliver you from these things. And then in the Passover, the one that you read about with Jesus, that's the cup of blessing that Paul is referring to here. It's the third cup. The third cup is the one. This is the cup. Jesus says, this is my blood. My blood. It's the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. And he says, drink. Now what's interesting in the Passover story, and I don't know what happened, but here's what I can read in the scripture. Jesus gets to the third cup. And he says, this is my blood. This is the redemption. It's going to be my, my life. The disciples start arguing. And they start saying, um, okay, Jesus, you said this is your blood. And then you said someone's going to betray you. So they start looking around. Like there's 11 of them, 12 of them. Who's, who's going to do it? Is it you? Is it you, Peter? No. Peter's foot and mouth. Is it you, Thomas? Doubting Thomas? No. We know it was Judas. But what's interesting is that in the Last Supper in the book of Luke, Jesus never gets to the fourth cup. He doesn't get there. He, he says, this is my blood. One of you is going to betray me. And then the betrayer gets up and begins the process. They're like, I can't believe it. What are you doing? And then it says, Jesus went to the garden of Gethsemane. And in Luke 22, Jesus talks about another cup. He says, Lord, if you can, take this cup from me. I think, it's my own hypothesis, that they went through the process, and he said, I'm going to die for you. The cup of blessing is my redemption. My, this cup will be full of my blood. The last cup is the cup of hope, the cup of restoration. My little theory is that Jesus became that cup, that they didn't drink it on the last supper. He went to the garden, and he drank it for us so that we could have eternal life and hope in him. Now, here's why this is powerful for me. So often in Christianity, we say, oh, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't do this, or dance, or you can drink, or you can smoke, or you can do that. Don't lust, don't look at this, look at that, look at that. And it becomes this race, in this, this rat race where there's pressure. Anyone else felt pressure to perform? Pressure to say the right things, to hide the, hide the sins that you ought to hide? I mean, the amount of things in our lives are astounding. If you heard the things that I said this week in my weakest moments, you would have questioned whether or not I was a pastor. Because I love my grandma. And my flesh came out. My flesh 
gave an opportunity for me to crawl from behind this table and sit at a table where I was fearing the worst, at a table where I was angry. Instead, we have this table. And here's what's so amazing about this table. This table says, no matter what you've done, God will bring you out. No matter what shackles are holding your life, addiction to anything, alcohol, drugs, pornography, your past, abuse that has gone on, abuse that is going on, abuse that you fear, financial ruin, whatever it is that is holding you in shackles, politics, religion itself holding you in shackles, thinking you have to perform, God will deliver you. Whatever sin that you have piled into your shame box within your heart, Jesus bled for. There is no amount of failure in your life that God does not say, purchased and redeemed. And then the last cup, the hope that we have, the hope that we have is that Jesus rose again. That we don't just stop and terminate at this point. There's somebody that would die for me. No, there's also somebody that lived for me. And now, no matter what I've gone through, no matter how many times I've got up from here and I've sat down at the table of addiction, sat down at the table of failure, sat down at the table of falling again, of failing again, of worrying, of putting all my trust in something else that's not God. No matter how many times I've feasted at this table of rotten, maggot-filled food, Jesus says, again, come to my table. And we're over here so busy. Well, I need to do this rule, and then this rule, and this rule. And God says, come to the table. When you come here, you'll see that these things, these rules, they change you. They will change the way you feel. My grace, my grace will change you. We don't change ourselves by white knuckling. You can't change yourselves by knowing more. You can't change yourself by praying more. You can't change yourself by going to more studies. Everyone in this room has studied more than the majority of every person I've ever met on a, on a missions trip because they don't have Bibles. They don't have resources. They don't have schools. We have so much knowledge. We have so much information. The difference is, is that they don't have a pretense to hide things like we do. Today, you can be freed. You can drink deeply of the cup, the blood of Christ, and know that the hope you have is tied up in his resurrection. We're not doing communion. I thought about it. It's Cuban bread, and there's gluten in it, so that's like 20% of you already out. And then I thought about doing it the old Catholic way. I went to a Catholic service once when I was young. My Filipino side of the family was Catholic. And I would like, that'd be so much fun to do it, like, because it's one bread in this passage. And it's one cup. And that's why they do that. If you've never been to a service, an old school service, I didn't grow up in the church, but I went one time with my family. And I found out later it was spiritually illegal what I did. It was illegal jaywalking to communion. And, uh, and I said, what do I do to my aunt? And she said, stick out your tongue. And that old priest finger with the wafer, he just popped that thing right on my tongue. And then I went right up to that cup where they're just literally wiping a side of the cup, and you all drink out of the same cup. And they just wipe it with a cloth, and then they just transmit diseases. That's all they're doing. Anyone want a disease, an STI? No? See, I told you I'm unhinged this week. I'm too tired. I just don't have time or the energy to try to sit up here and 
and be the pastor that you'll walk out here and say, well, gee golly, my pastor sure spoke a good message today. I want to be a pastor that you could walk out of here and say, I'm going to go straight to the store and get communion elements and take communion to remember and drink so much of the cup of blessing and put all my faith and trust in Jesus who absorbed all the wrath. He drank all of the cups that are so that we can have the cup of his eternal life. Because then it's less about, am I running from idols? How do I run from idols? Here's how you run from idols. When you realize you're at a table of stupidity and demons, you get up and you look back at the cup of blessing, the blood, the redemption. And you say, Jesus, you died for it. Jesus, you, you give me hope. And no matter what, how many times you've done it, no matter how many times you've gone back to the, to the rot, come here and say, it doesn't, Jesus says, it doesn't matter. I'm right here. I will deliver you. I will free you. I have saved you. It's a done deal. And now you drink my eternal life forever. But so often, and even today, just getting people to say, I said, just say it. Whatever your shame is, whatever table you've been eating out, just say it out loud and get some freedom. And you could see people fighting. I can't. I won't. I shouldn't. I, I, here's the deal. If you can't say it here, if you can't say it now to someone that you love and trust here, you'll, you won't be able to. It's going to, those shackles, those teeth are going to sink into you. And you know and I know that it's slowly eating you up on the inside. But here's all I can tell you. In the last five years, I've had people come and share the wildest things. And it's not uncommon to any other church. I cheated on my spouse. I'm addicted to pornography. I'm an alcoholic. I'm addicted to this drug. I constantly am having massive thoughts of suicide. I attempted suicide. I've gone through this. I've gone through that. And so often people come with their head hung low. And all I want to do is tip up their chin and just say, drink. It is paid for. You are worse than you even think. You're a wretched human. Isn't it amazing that God would love such a wretched human like you and like me? We can come to the table and eat. Because he died for you. And we have a hope because he rose again for you and for me. But so often we forget this table. The reason why I've told you so many times I don't like doing communion here is because I hate giving a little piece of Jesus. Because we do that. We're like, come get a little bit of Jesus. Like if that's all the Jesus you need, God help your soul. I need an entire loaf of Jesus. Gluten-filled Jesus. I, I don't need grape juice, which is why I don't do communion at the chapel, because we have some weird rule that says I can't do it. And, and you, some of you are thinking already, you're going back to the meat and no meat. Well, pastors, should you drink alcohol? You know what Jesus' first miracle was? Making 760 bottles of Chateau Merlot. And now we're like, don't drink alcohol. He made the good stuff. Enough for people to get hammered on. What if people get drunk? They will get drunk. Remember what I just said? We are all one step away from stupid, and we have all crossed the line into stupid and dined at the table of demons. We've all eaten our idols to our heart's content, and we've all found them wanting. All I'm asking is that today, you stop trying to play the pretend game. You stop trying to pretend you're better than you, you are, and you say, I have failed all over the place. And for those of you in here who are managing your Christian exterior life, and you, you're staying shiny, that's fine. But when you get tired, you can come find me. You know where to find me. I'll be tired right here. I'm going to go sit on what I've now named the super pew. Pew, pew, pew. You can come and sleep on the pew. Find some rest. Because it's right behind the cross. This cross is there. Just put it right in front. Don't let the religious arguments and rules distract you from the truth. That we 
had someone who became the cup of blessing for us. We don't have to drink this every year because Jesus bled out once for all. I like to do this as a remembrance. We're not doing it today because, like I said, one, my family just got over a bunch of pneumonia and stuff. Two, I don't trust your ability to wash yourself and your hands. Um, three, I love you enough to say, go home, buy a loaf of bread and a bottle of wine or whatever you think is appropriate and read the story in Luke chapter 22 and remember how loved and freed you are. Then we could finally stop pretending and we could finally stop hiding. We could finally say those things aloud that have been shackling us and eating our soul from the inside for years and find maybe just today a measure of freedom. This is what we flee to. Idolatry is what we flee from. And when we get this process down, we'll do it over and over and over again. All of a sudden you'll realize, well, it's not so much about these individual rules because if I keep running here, I'm content and I'm free and I'm happy because it's where your soul was created to be. I pray that that would be you this morning, that you would choose to stand from your table of demons, to walk to the table of Christ, and to feast on him. First step is to confess, find that freedom, get with someone that you love and say, this is what I've been doing, and you throw it up on him. And you'll be amazed. You'll be amazed at how much you will drink deeply when you finally let go of that shame that's been clogging your throat for these so many years. Let's pray. Father, I have worried. I've failed. Lord, I've, I've coveted after stupid things, Lord. Cars. You've, Lord, you've seen me look at a Tesla this week and covet that thing. You've seen my addictions. You've seen my pain. You've seen me turn to food and to beer instead of turning to your Holy Spirit and prayer. Lord, you've seen every abysmal failure in the midst of my worry this week. And yet, you invite me back. And yet, you're always here. You've never left. You've never forsaken me, and you never will. Because it's who you are. Some people here, Lord, need freedom this morning. Some people here, God, have been living at a table of idolatry for so long, they wouldn't even know what you taste like. Some people here are so comfortable in their self-sufficiency and self-righteousness that they wouldn't even know what confession and forgiveness feels like. Break through, Holy Spirit. Break through and change lives. Shatter the masks that we wear so that we can be the free people you have called and saved uh, and filled us to be. Until we see you face to face, Lord, we love you. I'll talk to you later.